Our first 10-minute speaker is Clinton S. Hi, my name is Clinton. I'm a recovered alcoholic. And I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you so much for asking me to speak, Pierre. It's such an honor and a pleasure to speak in my home group amongst all of you who are a big, huge part of my 2.0 recovery in this process. Um, my sobriety date is February uh, 21st, 1994. I have a sponsor. Um, I sponsor people. I take people through this book. This is the book, of, big book about Alcoholics Anonymous. We don't know what it is. I started out with a little tiny one. As I got older, I used the bigger one now. It's easier for me to read and go through. Um, when I first came to AA, I was 24 years old. Um, I wasn't sure if I was an alcoholic or not, um, but I was told to just keep coming. Um, I knew there was something wrong with me. I didn't know what it was. I wasn't sure if it was alcohol or not or what it was. Um, but as I kept coming to meetings and uh, I walked into one meeting and there was a guy standing at the door who had actually a big book in his hand and uh, he gave me his phone number and he told me that he went through this book and that it saved his life and uh, he suggested I do the same. Um, so I agreed to sit down with him and go through the book with him. Um, and my experience of the last 27 years of reading this book over and over and over again, the repetition of reading this book and having uh, not only a spiritual experience, but having many, many spiritual experiences that are still happening in my life because of reading this book with somebody and then reading it with him, him reading it to me, and then me reading it with other people has completely changed my life. I am not the same person that walked in these doors 27 years ago. And that's because of the people that were here before me who, who gave me this information and taught me to read this book over and over and over again. And I used to, it used to really bother me when people said they were recovered because I didn't understand what they were saying. Today, I understand it. I'm not cured of alcoholism. This, is, this has not gone away. But what has happened is I don't have any symptoms of alcoholism today. I don't suffer from the same things that I used to suffer from. You know, I don't have the obsession to drink anymore. That is an amazing miracle that has happened in my life. And it's because of the men that came before me, men and women who came before me and who taught me how to live this life without a drink. And I didn't think that was possible. You know, I really didn't think that I could have a life without alcohol. I thought that was going to be the rest of my life, you know. Um, so I, I, I love this book. And. Um, I'm going to refer to it a lot um, in the little bit of time that I do have. Um, so the book opens up with how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. Hence the recovered. Um, there were others who were before me who got recovered from this disease and who passed this on to me, who knew, um, who were armed with the facts about this disease and could show me what I was doing to myself and what I was doing to other people. And, then, and that there is a solution. Now, the solution was not what I wanted to hear when I first came here. You know, the solution is God. If you don't like hearing that, I'm sorry, but that is the solution. You can call it whatever you want. You know, universe, energy, higher power, God. I choose to call it God. Um, I love also the universe because I feel the energy of the universe. And that is what I go to in my place. And that helps me. Um, to be a better person every day. Um, 
so anyway, I just want to really quick go to, if you have the book, you can come with me. Um, and if you don't have the book, I suggest to get one. Uh, pages 24 and 25, it's very simple. It's, it's, it's laid out so simply. Page 24 tells me about the problem. Page 25 tells me what the solution is. There are facts. The fact is that most alcoholics, for some reason, yet obscure, have lost the power of choice and drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into a consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without the defense against the first drink. If you understand what I just read to you, then you have the problem. So if you understand exactly what I just which is what I just said to you is you and you're feeling that way, there is a solution. And it's exactly on right on the opposite page on page twenty-five. And it's it's laid out so simply. I'm sorry. Five minutes. Um, that's how fast this goes. There is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of our shortcomings, which the process requires for a successful consummation. But we saw that it really worked in others. This is what I saw. I saw that this, there was something about these people that I was seeing. Pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. If you get a sponsor, the sponsor will help you get these tools laid at your feet. They're very simple. This is for everybody. This is what I was told. This is not just for certain people. Not just certain people get this. This is for anybody that's on this call right now. This is available to you. This is available to all of us every single day. As long as we follow these simple little things that we need to do. There's nothing to be afraid of. You have no reason to be afraid. Just let us help you. That's what, that's all we ask of you. It's to let us help you. So what, did it, what happened to me was this guy helped me. And then the, the thing that he told me when he sat down with me was now you need to help other people. That is your goal. That's what you need to do. And what I love about the book is that it's really simply laid out. Again, in working with others, it's 15 exact things to do to help other people. It gives you the specific directions on how to help other people. There's a lot I'm leaving out in here, but again, I'll say, get a sponsor who talks about God, higher power, whatever the source is, whatever you want to call it, and they read the big book. It's very important that you talk to a person that's in this book that's living this, not just reading it, but living this. They will take you through this book, and then they will show you how you can not only get help for yourself, but you can help other people. And the, the greatest gift that I've been given since I've been doing all of this is being able to give this away to somebody else, is to show them exactly what I did. They can do it their way, but I just do it my way. I know how it worked for me. I, I don't... You know, I, I, I really follow the directions. I've also, um, what do I want to say? Um, I'm just really grateful. I have a life beyond anything I ever thought I could ever have. I never thought that I could be where I am today. I never thought that I could be this person that I am today. Um, I'm a loyal, honest person who, who carries integrity in his life who cares about his family, who does things for people way above anything I ever thought I could do for people. Um, My job is to take care of people. It's literally what I do every day, is to help other people. Um, 
I've been able to be there for my father before he passed away. I was there with him every step of the way. I was there. I'm there with my mother right now. She's struggling. She's having a hard time. But I am there for her. And the only reason I'm there for her is because I don't drink, and I'm doing this process. And I and I trust in God that God has me. I have one minute, so I'm almost done. But I'm so grateful. Listen, just really hang on to anything that anybody says here, please. I hope you. Got something out of what I said tonight. I know I don't have, it's not much time, but this really works. It really, really works, I promise you. So thank you very much. Our second 10-minute speaker is Katie H. Hi, everyone. Uh, Katie, alcoholic, um, grateful member of Atlantic Group. I have a sponsor who has a sponsor, um, and I'm living in 10, 11, and 12. Um, I'm very grateful to be here and to speak. It's the second time I've been a 10-minute speaker at at Atlantic Group, and the first time, I think, was actually 2016. Um, I came to the group when I had, I think it was just over three years, and um, I spoke, I remember, I remember celebrating my four years. So it's been a blessing. I have eight and a half years now. Um, You know, I will go into... Uh, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, Basically, I do come from an alcoholic family. I didn't really grow up with an active alcoholic in the house, but um, my father, my birth father, is uh, is an alcoholic, might might be an alcoholic, not sure, Um, but he wasn't really in my life. Um, my, My maternal grandfather died of this disease. My paternal grandfather was an alcoholic. My grandmother was an alcoholic who had stopped drinking the year I was born. So I was warned at a young age to be careful of drinking. Um, And here I am. Uh, But basically, I am uh, someone who liked to to drink to get out of myself, as many of us did. Um, I loved to go out. I loved going to the bar. I had my favorite bars. I had, you know, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite things was to show up at a bar, get a drink, and before I even finish that drink, have a fresh one at the bar waiting for me. And the places that I like to go to, it was like that all night. Um, I remember that, you know, I was the type of alcoholic that threw up. I threw up, I think, the first time I was drunk, and that continued throughout most of my drinking. And I remember, you know, being around other people who drank like me who didn't throw up or who didn't black it out. And I was always fascinated. I was like, when am I going to be able to drink like them? You know, like thinking that somehow it was going to change. And I wanted to read, um, you know, they say great minds think alike. So like the previous speaker read from the big book, I also had picked a section because in 2012, um, a therapist at the time planted the seed for me to get sober. And she would say to me, you know, why don't you try 90 days? And I would literally laugh in her face. And I'd be sitting in her office sweating. My hands would shake. And... She, you know, a couple of weeks would go by, she'd say, why don't you try 90 days? And, you know, I look back now and that was, you know, a true gift of, of the program. Um, because eventually I did go to my first meeting in April, 2012, and I didn't hear my story, but people said, keep coming back until you do. And I want to read a little bit in um, chapter three, more about alcoholism. Here are some of the messages. This is for the newcomer. We have tried. 
Drinking beer only, limiting the number of drinks, never drinking alone, never drinking in the morning, drinking only at home, never having it in the house, never drinking during business hours, drinking only at parties, switching from scotch to brandy, drinking only natural wines, agreeing to resign if ever drunk on the job, taking a trip, not taking a trip, swearing off forever with and without the solemn oath, taking more physical exercise, reading inspirational books, going to health farms and sanitariums, accepting voluntary commitment to assignment. Sorry if my, if my battery's low. Um, to asylums, we could only increase the list ad infinitum. And I wanna say that that resonated with me even before I started counting days when I was in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous because I did a lot of these. You know, I, I thought, how can I be an alcoholic because I don't drink in the home? Um, I only go out. I don't drink alone. Even though I remember my old therapist saying to me, well, if you go to the bar by yourself and you don't know anyone, that is alone. And I was like, okay. Um, I didn't drink in the morning because I'd be too sick. I mean, I'd literally be throwing up in the morning and my hands would shake. Uh, one of my favorite things was that I would wake up my last um, you know, year of drinking, I'd often wake up with my eyes swollen. The upper lids of my eyes would be completely swollen. And I thought I had allergies. I changed my pillows. I never left the house without cooling eye cream. <laughs> and you know, little did I know that after I, I stopped drinking that that has never happened since. Um, but coming to the Atlantic group was exactly what I needed. I needed to hear about God. I needed to um, recommit myself to a higher power. I needed to work the steps through the big book. I needed to make amends in person that I never thought I would make. Uh, I needed to be open to receiving love. Um, before I got sober, I wasn't able to tell people I love them outside of my immediate family. Thank you, five minutes. And in sobriety, I, I have a ton of people that I say that to, and it's just such a tremendous gift. I remember when I was newly sober, my first sponsor, who I barely knew, I mean, she said to me, I love you. And I was like, Ugh. I was, I was mortified. And, you know, today, eight and a half year, years later, not only can I receive that love, but I can openly give it. Um, 2020, as for many of us, was a tough year. And I want to just thank Atlantic Group for helping to carry me through. It's been such a pleasure to do, um, to be present in this meeting every week on Tuesday, even through Zoom. It's been a tremendous gift to do service. Um, this group has taught me to say yes. And um, I have commitments and I'm, I've qualified, not even exaggerating, probably 40 times over the last year and a half. Um, and I'm just so, so grateful. I mean, there's been, there's been, I live alone and there's been such a gift for me to see familiar faces every week doing fellowship after this meeting, doing virtual fellowship. And last year was a tough year for me. I had a breakup and I had uh, my longest relationship in sobriety and I had a breakup and it brought me to my knees. You know, it brought me to my knees and I did not drink alcohol. I did not take any other substances. And I'm very, very grateful. Also, my maternal grandmother passed away. I lived with her till I was um, 26 years old. Um, and she was, she was a tough person, but also um, carried me a lot, you know, through most of my life. And she worried about me when I was drinking. And I'm grateful that I was able to make an amends to her. 
Um, and it was a simple amends. It was the amends that saying, you don't have to worry about me anymore. You know, because when I first got sober, I remember walking late at night and, and the first thought I had was, am I walking straight? And I invented the term of um, the phantom drunk because I had been so used to wobbling around that my body remembered what that was like, even in sobriety. Am I walking straight? Can the person behind me tell if I'm drunk? Well, I wasn't. I was completely sober. And I'm so grateful that I don't have to live that way anymore. That today, you know, my life is completely different. And while it's not perfect, it's definitely a long, slow recovery. And that's something I've been actually thinking about a lot lately. Because when I first got sober, I wanted everything to be done at the snap of my fingers. And obviously that was not the case. I mean, it's been very, it feels slow to me. You know, I'm still waiting on some of those ninth step promises, but I know that it's not my timing, it's God's timing. And I'm extremely grateful that I can, even in the hard days where I don't wanna do anything, I can, you know, log into a meeting or go to a meeting in person and, you know, make phone calls, talk to my sponsor. Um, you know, there's so many different things that I can do now and tools that I have. And, you know, in this last year, I, after I had this heartbreak and, and the sadness of loss, I, um, I committed to doing daily yoga. And that's something I never would have done. And then more recently, I've started doing these bike rides and I've done you know, 25 miles twice a week, you know, since early July or 30 miles. And, you know, it's just been, it's been such a gift because I can, my body is showing up for me in ways that I never thought it would. Because as I mentioned, eight and a half years ago, I was, you know, throwing up almost daily. I was hugging that toilet and uh, I would write in my cell phone calendar last day of drinking. Thank you, one minute. Last day of drinking, and it never was until it was. So I'm just so grateful to be sober today, to be perfectly imperfect, and to be speaking with all of you. Thank you. It's Gordon. Good evening, everyone. My name is Gordon. I'm an alcoholic. I'm grateful to be here tonight with all of you, and I want to thank everyone who's doing service here tonight because the meeting doesn't happen without you. And the importance of service is incredible. Uh, I got into service when I first walked in the doors and it wasn't my choice to do it, but I know it's helped me. And I don't think there's been any time that I didn't have a service position in Alcoholics Anonymous. To give you this, the vital stats, I've been sober 31 years. I'm 58 years old now, so I've been in AA over half my life. I got through both those ages one day at a time. My home group is the Sunday morning meditation meeting. We used to meet on uh, East 22nd Street and 3rd Avenue. We meet on Zoom and we just started mid meeting physically every other week. I do service there and also do service at a men's big book meeting. And since we were on Zoom, I was doing service at a meeting in Akron at 6 a.m. It started at 6.45, but I was the opener and I had to be there at six o'clock. And uh, if you're one of those people who says, you know, I'm doing service sitting in a seat. No, you're, you're not doing service. If, if it's convenient, it's not doing service. You're doing service when you're getting up at five in the morning to open a meeting for 140 people. And you're listening to 150 people, 140 people all yelling at 645 before they shut everything down. And uh, that's real service. And uh, 
They used to read the 24-hour book. They yeah, exposed me for a different type of AA because I was not into that book particularly. But it got me into it. I didn't like some of the religious aspects of it, but it helped me immensely doing that service. And uh, slowly, while back to the New York meetings, and I'm grateful to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah, for asking me to speak. As I said, I've been sober 31 years. And what I do on a daily basis is I do a written 10 step every day. It was something that Kevin Heaney taught me many years ago to do. And all I do is list down my daily activities. And all those 12 activities I do every day are things to see what I'm doing and what I'm not doing. And it's just things to do that moving in the direction of God. But also there's emotional disturbances. And I don't have those disturbances like I used to anymore because I have a solution now to all of my problems here. And usually right after that, I list all my fears and then ask the real big question, how would I act if I didn't have the fear? What would I do? And it asks me to list my assets, my liabilities, but part of the 10th step too is listing three kind acts I do every single day. And they're not for me, they're for other people. And I don't disclose them to other people. And for that person, and also something that changes inside of me. I get some kind of God shot when I'm doing something for other people. I'm not asking for anything in return. And sometimes I just overlook it and I do more than three. And I don't just record stuff because there's something that happens inside me and I don't know what it is. It just feels good. I practice prayer and meditation and I understood today that when I'm, you know, I would not brought up religion, but I was anti-religious. Uh, religion is when man talks to man about God. And I understand that spirituality is when man talks to man or woman talks to woman about God. And I talk to God every morning. And at the end of the day, I practice you know, the, the meditation, usually about 20 minutes a day. And uh, during the course of the day, I break it up sometimes. But it's always time to dedicate to God. And I find the time because something happens when I sit there and I just get quiet and I might write down my, my 10 step. But also what happens is there's a shift there. I stop thinking about myself so much and I start thinking of what I can do for other people. I don't know how it happens automatically. I'll just be, maybe you should get this person a text. How about you call this person? Why don't you go out for the walk and just you know go by someone's house and see how they're doing and be a service that way. And uh, that's not how my life was, but that's how it is today. I sponsor men, I have a sponsor and I'm grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous when I have a life today. I was fine, and I want to thank Katie and Clinton for the wonderful messages. I was just fine until I heard my name, and then all of a sudden that terror and anxiety just came over me, and I knew I was going to be okay. There was a man who was here many years ago when I came in. He sits gone. His name was Frank, and Frank used to tell, tell us about the anxiety he had, and this guy used to speak for Alcoholics Anonymous on the history, of, and he'd speak in front of thousands of people, but he would always have that terror. And he told me about the secret. And the secret's just four little things. Begin where you are, step out and face, do the best you can gracefully, and expect God to help. So where I am today is just like, I have this amazing life because of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I'm all I'm here with you. I step out and face because I'm not in charge of my life. When I'm in charge of my life, terrible things happen. When I give it to God, amazing things happen. And all I can do is when I determine to do everything perfectly or right, doesn't happen that way. I had to understand life is just part of the meditation. When you meditate, sounds go on, you start thinking all these things, they're just part of the meditation and there's a part of it. And I will be okay. And that's the hardest thing for me to believe today, that I'm gonna be okay. And we're all gonna be okay. I grew up in an alcoholic family and uh, 
I was originally born from Staten Island. Both my parents were alcoholics. My home movies as a kid were not shot in Disneyland or on camping trips or to national parks. They were shot in bars like the Seahorse and the Colony and uh, Kennedy's Bar and Grill. And you see scenes, no audio thing. Thank goodness there's no audio. And it looked like episodes of Shameless without the audio. And here I am in the bar, everything's yellow from the nicotine and from the age. And there's one scene when I'm outside playing and my parents and he, my father didn't even come out to but videotape us or shoot the camera with us. He just stuck the camera out the window. And uh, this is what I grew up in. So I knew what alcohol did to people even back then. There was a lot of violence. There was a lot of, you know, neglect. And uh, by the time I was a nine-year-old kid, I knew what alcohol did to people. And I didn't want to be with my parents. But when my father went to one of these bungalows with his buddies to go drink it, he brought me along. They played five-card stud and they watched Eha and they said, go get me a beer. And I went to get the beer and it was full tops back then. And I would run with the beer and they would say, don't run with the beer. Because I knew at that age, if I popped the beer open, I would take that slug and keep it from foaming. And they would be like, stop drinking the beer. There was some attraction about alcohol to, to me, even at that age. And I just didn't know what it was. It was a magical thing. Fast forwarded, I moved out west with my mother. My parents had an Irish divorce. My father came home drunk with a bunch of cash. He robbed his pockets, took the kids, went to another state, disappeared, got a divorce in Reno, and we moved it to Central California. She married another alcoholic. I hated this man. I just had so much anger in me. I had, my alcoholism was in full effect by the time I was 12. And I had such uncontrollable rage and a gigantic hole in my soul. And I didn't know what it was. And I was looking for outside things to fix me. And as I know, but anything I could see with my eyes will not fix me. It has to come from something within. And by the time I was 14, I hated this man. And uh, him and I got into an altercation one day. The police came and instead of taking him away, the police took me away. They took me to a neighbor's house. It was one of my friends from school. And my mother came a couple days later and called a couple days later and she asked to see me. And she met me on a street corner, handed me a hundred dollars and handed me a bag of clothes and said, you're on your own. We don't want you back in that house. And, uh, you know, I was just disowned by the person who was supposed to take care of me more than my, in my life. And it was because she chose alcohol over me and I hated drunks. I hated everything about it. I hated every human being. I had no use of this God or any, anything in my life. I was just this angry child. And I went to say goodbye to these people and they looked at me, where are you going? And I was like, I'm going back to New York to live with my sister. And they're like, it's the middle of the school year, stay with us. Stay with these people, they were very kind. I had a fully stocked bar and it never, it only came out like around Christmas time to make hot toddies. I stayed with them for the next year until I finished high school. And uh, their son was my best friend. And uh, one day there's a person with my best friend. He said, why do your parents drink so much? And I was like, I have no idea. Because we would walk past my old house and I see my stepfather out in the yard. He was plastered, my mother drunk. And I was embarrassed. And he said, we decided it was the end of the school year. We were gonna go have a nice couple of drinks and we were gonna do something in school and you know, end the year. And his mother was one of these ladies who cooked. She saved all the jelly jars and the old mayonnaise jars because she liked to cook. And uh, we took one of these old mayonnaise jars and we started hitting the bar. We started hitting the white boots, a little off the vodka, a little off the gin. 
both the tequila you know, on and on and on. And we filled up the Spanish jar. And it didn't look like enough. It didn't look right. So we poured in scotch. We poured in whiskey. We poured all this other stuff, creamed and bent. It, it looked foul. It looked like gasoline. I, I did not like the taste of alcohol. I drank for its effect. I just want to go on a record about that. So here we are, a couple 15 years, 15, 16 year olds. We went to school. We got this managed jar. Then we bring it on the football field. It's 95 degrees out. It's the end of May. We're passing this stuff around. It's You took a sip of it. It burned your mouth. It burned your lips. It burned your throat. It went down your windpipe. It hurt. It hit your stomach. It was on fire. And it got back to me again. It took another gulp and another gulp. And then all of a sudden, that magical thing happened. I was suddenly in the moment. I was comfortable in my own skin. That hole in my chest went away. That voices in my head calmed down, and I was there. I was right there, and then that fact that I was looking for my whole life, I liked who I was. My hair wasn't so straight. I was handsome and bulletproof. I was suddenly good-looking like Terry Grant. I was funny like Rodney Dangerfield, and I was tough like Mike Tyson. That was right. That's what I became. For those drinks, I looked like Rodney Dangerfield. I was tough like Cary Grant. I was funded like uh, Mike Tyson. It was all backwards. Who's fixed that? I found my solution. My solution worked for a number of years. And then I found myself taking things that didn't belong to me, like automobiles and various other things and houses. And uh, I tried to find every party I could. I loved alcohol. I was hooked on this chemical, the drug alcohol. And uh, about two weeks later, I stole somebody's car and uh, I smashed it up a little bit. The people who watched me rapidly changed and they said, you needed to go too. I went back, came back to New York. I was here for one day. I was living with my sister. She had kids that were small. She's like, you gotta get a job and get your own place. I was there for two weeks and when I'm determined to get something to do it, I do it. Got a job in a restaurant, 17 years old. I'm working with people much older than me and they were showing me New York City in the 19, early 80s and it was fun. The new wave stuff was out, punk music was around, and they would take me to bars in lower Manhattan. And I had no business being in these neighborhoods. And suddenly one day I woke up, it's probably 20, 19 years old, and that day had not gone by, but I didn't put something in my body, alcohol or something else, just to get out of me. And people noticed a change in me. I was like a wild animal. My favorite drink was the next one. It was never the one in front of me. I was always thinking of where was the next one came from. And things that used to be important to me were less important. And my sister showed the change in me and my boss. And here I am, I'm a full-blown alcoholic at the age of 19. And my boss, instead of firing me, he said he thought maybe there was something worth saving. And him and my sister arranged for me to go into a detox at Coney Island at 19. I went because I was afraid to get kicked out of our house and then also because I had lost my apartment and uh, I didn't want to lose my job. And I went. <clears throat> I heard the message of Alcoholics Anonymous for the first time at the age of 19. I was surrounded by people twice my age, all wishing to be in my shoes, to have a chance to do it over again. But I already had reservations. The moment I could get out of there, I was just going to go back to what I was doing because I'm 19 years old. I could stop later. You know, I hadn't got arrested. I had it, you know. I hadn't got arrested, I hadn't got in a car accident, I didn't lose apartments. Yeah, I did, I lose apartment. But I had all these things still that I could hold on to and say, hey, I'm not an alcoholic. And But throughout my drinking, I always had this one guy, I used to work uh, on a job with him. His name was Ray. We used to call him Bebo. 
Bebo had a glass eye, and he used to tell us all these stories about how he's lost his eye in a bar fight to a bunch of Hells Angels in the Lower East Side. And the story always changed. He looked like Charles Manson, and uh, you know, it was just crazy looking, and claimed to be a biker. We never saw him on a motorcycle. He always had a bicycle at 10 speed, broken 10 speed. And the truth came out, he lost his eye in a bar fight. But he was my measuring stick. If I ended up like this man, I would stop drinking. And all those things that I mentioned started happening, getting arrested, getting kicked out of bars, losing apartments, losing relationships, my family not wanting me around, lose everything. The only thing that mattered was where the next drink was coming from. And I didn't care how I got it or who I had hurt to get it. And so this went on for several more years. I was 20 years old, 21 years old, working construction, building houses on Staten Island. I swear, I don't know how any of these houses are still standing because most of the guys I worked with were their Scandinavian Legion, and these guys were heavy hitters. And they didn't care what you did on the weekend as long as you showed up at the job on Monday. You didn't drink on the job at lunch or anything like that. Occasionally they would be on Fridays. And I would show up at a job site. I First, I get paid on Friday. Bad thing, paying on Friday. You're not going to see me on Saturday. I get $2,100 cash and maybe a paycheck. I would go to a place called Kelly's Pub or go to PJ's Pub. But first I had to go to the check cashing place. Cash a check. And as soon as I came in the check cashing place, there were six guys looking for money. They wanted their hands out because I had borrowed money from everyone to survive. Thanks, Ryan. And so uh, I would go to PJ's and I put a 20 on the bar. But I think I would do with all the cash and put this pocket, this pocket, this pocket, wallet and boot and stuff. And then next thing you know, it was midnight. And uh, then we start going playing the rest of the night. And then we get kicked out of PJs, we go to Kelly's. We go to Kelly's and you sit there and the lights go on at 4.30. They say last fall, you order six o'clock big grapefruits. And uh, it was just madness. And you would leave the bar and the sun would be coming up. The garbage trucks would go by, the newspaper trucks would go by, the birds were chirping. And you had this brilliant idea to go back to work. And then you were to work on a Saturday. And uh, bad idea because you showed up the job and you're in the hot sun bulldozers and noise and all this stuff is going on at the construction site and uh it's just terrible and the hangover starts coming to you from the beaten sun and uh you're just saying suddenly you believe in god he's like god please just get me out of this i swear i won't do this again i just want to go home and rest and then someone would pick up the tools and someone would say let's go back let's go back to pjs and you'll be back to pjs and you party all night, and you wake up the next morning on Sunday, and you start going through the pockets, and all the money is gone. And it's just like, you did the, I did this the same ways all the time. And every week, it was the same thing. And uh, <clears throat> the one day that I did not drink, I was working on a job site in the winter. <clears throat> I had to work because I needed the money. And uh, I fell down a stairwell, went down two flights. We used to push the snow off the decks to work, and the snow was in the stairwell. It froze up. I hit that. I landed on a hammer. <clears throat> the measuring tape went right in directly into my back, uh, and also the hammer claw. I slid down a partition into a wall with a bunch of studs and sticking nails out. So I was all cut up, bloody, and I couldn't stand up. A couple guys helped me. They got me in a truck, took me to the hospital, and uh, there I was waiting to be treated for injuries. I was there for a little while, but there was some other, uh, a car accident or something else. I was like down the list. And the guys who brought me there, they were like, came in, you know, like, how long are you gonna be? I had no idea. And uh, I could smell the booze on them. They were in a truck party and, and uh, 
I was determined to have the drink. I needed something for the pain. So I managed to get my clothes on and my boots on. I, I couldn't stand up. I crawled my hands and knees to get to that truck to drink. I was bone dry. That is the true definition of what insanity is, my friends. It's not what I do after a drink. It's things I do for the drink because I did permanent damage to my back. And some of you know me. It's just it, I've had a number of surgeries and also lots of years of treatments for my back. And I went back to work the following week because I wanted to prove these guys what a tough guy I was. I did a lot of pain. I've been a lot of pain in sobriety. And uh, because of these decisions. And I thought my problem was New York. Uh, so I went to California. I got into, a, I took a Greyhound bus west because this was the problem, New York. And I was in a place called Stockton, California. California. I was there for 20 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, and I was doing exactly what I was doing in New York. I got arrested there. I went to live with my mother and her husband again. They wanted to put me up, and uh, the madness, like, never stopped. I, uh, what just happened was uh, I went to a detox, I went to a rehab, I went to an outpatient program. They offered to take me AA meetings, but I was determined to do it court this way, and court way does not work, even today. And uh, uh, I was building a deck for my stepfather and my mother. He was drinking a gallon of vodka in a day and a half. My mother was popping hundreds of pills a week. This was my support network with no AA, bone drive for 70 days. And one day he came out with a can of beer. It was a can of old Milwaukee. It was condensate to sound like one of those ads you see in the billboards and the subways. And it sweated and he handed it to me. And this man who drank for 50 years and died from seizures told me that my problem was the drugs, not the drinking. If I could learn to control my drinking like him, I'd be okay. That made sense to this disease. That's why you should never do a 12 step all by yourself. I had one sip of that can of beer and it came more and back, that madness. I was bone dry, wiped that out. Any kind of chance I had to get sober was wiped out. And uh, I didn't drink the next day. Two days later, he offered to buy me a 12 pack. I drank the 12 pack with him, started drinking his vodka. I went through his pocket, stole his money, sold his car. It was a stick shift. I still don't know how to drive a stick shift this day, but I did that night. And I found two guys just like us. And they showed me where to find the boost and the dry goods. And I was off to the races. And the next morning, he realized what I had done. And he asked me to leave and he gave me money. He took me to the bus and he said, go back to New York. I came back to New York. I couldn't get a job doing construction anywhere. I couldn't get a job driving a cab anywhere because there were a lot of nine steps waiting for me. People wanted to hurt me. So I disappeared into the streets of Brooklyn. Uh, I weighed about 209 and back then I weighed about 175 pounds. I couldn't wear a short sleeve shirt. I was probably the most detestable person I ever met was me because I would do anything for alcohol, drugs. I would hurt people and uh, I would rip you off blind. If I got into your house, forget about it. I'd take anything, but you, as soon as your head turned, it was mine. And uh, every night I went to go sleep on rooftops or in alleyways or, or landing on the stairwell in some apartment building. And I wanted this God I did not believe in to kill me in my sleep because I didn't know how to stop. I wanted the madness to end. And I prayed this just, it would just end somehow. And I tried AA, I came in, but uh, I wanted to do it my way. And I couldn't do it my way. And these guys who were back then which told me, this ain't Burger King, you can't have it your way. And I went into the detox, bouncing out, rehab, bouncing out, and I just wanted it to end. And 
one day I went into a church. I went to go uh, on a couple of these uh, nice blue, nice ladies, old Catholic ladies, and uh, I went up to one of them and asked her for five dollars. She asked me. She gave me five dollars. She gave me her card. She said, "Come to my house tomorrow for lunch," and I went there and got to this kitchen in this beautiful brownstone. Went into the basement where the kitchen was. I sat at a table. There was a man named Richard there. Richard was her brother. He was sober and alcoholic for 16 years. And I remember the thing about him was those crystal clear blue eyes he had and a big smile. And he listened to me and he smiled. And after a while, I just wanted to get out of here because I knew it was one of you eating cold people. And I, I did not want what you guys had. And he said one thing, but he did it. You got to get the seed planted. And he planted the seed. He said, you got to, you know, you don't have to drink today. I needed to drink. I was physically hooked on the drug alcohol. I had to drink. And the next day he took me to Graymore. <clears throat> Him and another guy took me there. They left me there. And Graymore wouldn't take me. They said, you can stay tonight, but you got to go back to New York. Because they didn't have the facilities to handle me in case I had a seizure. And they were afraid I would die if I had a seizure there. And I got back to New York City. I called this guy Richard because I was desperate. I had no other answer. I just wanted to get a couple of bucks out of him. And he took me to a meeting with a group of guys. And back then, the old cars, they put me in the backseat of the car. I was in the middle on the hump. And they were like, we're going you know, to a meeting. And these guys were so happy about going to a meeting. Richard was driving. And guys would say, Gordon, how much time do you have? And I just like ignore them, give me the cold shoulder. And at every light, I wanted to jump out because these guys were delighted about being in AA. I hated them. And we get to the meeting about an hour and 20 minutes before the meeting. And I'm like, what are we doing here so early? And they were like, we're here to do ABCs. We're like, what is that? Ashtrays, brooms, and chairs. And they would set up the chairs and put them over there. And then, like, I sit down and the guy said, come here, here. And he hand me a stack of ashtrays. He said, put those on every other seat except for those six or eight seats over there. That's a non-smoking section. Don't put any ashtrays over there. I sat in the back. The guy told me to come up, sit in the front, shut up, and listen, because I didn't know anything of how to stay sober. My best thinking got me in here, take the cotton out of my ears and stick it in my mouth. I sat in the meeting, I stewed. And after the meeting, it was the second meeting. I didn't want to get in the car with these guys. I found a guy in the AA meeting who had a nice heart. I was going to get 10 bucks out of him. And he asked me, what do you want the money for? I said, I want pizza. And he's like, hold on. So I toughed it out. I waited. And after a period of time, I waited for the meeting. And uh, he's like, what do you want the money for? And I was like, I'm hungry. And he's like, come with me. I was taken to one of those beautiful Brooklyn diners that has a circular booth that sat like 12 to 16 people, and I was in the middle. I was keeping everyone sober that night, and uh, I couldn't eat, and these people took care of me. They really did, and they said a lot of things to me, and they listened to me. The gift of listening, folks, the gift of listening to a newcomer and hearing them, and what you'll get from them. And I was giving them that special gift. And I told them I needed a job, I needed a place, I needed my family. And someone said, BS, what you need to learn to do is stay away from the first train. And I hung on to these people. And one day I had a seizure outside of a meeting. And uh, all of a sudden, so, so all of a sudden, you know, someone I never met before, you know, would introduce me and, uh, to this guy, Herbie. And this guy, Herbie, arranged me to go into this place in the far end of Staten Island last place I wanted to be. And I went there and I got detox there. I went to a rehab there. And the day I got released, wasn't supposed to be released on a Sunday. I was supposed to be released on Thursday and go to a place in Manhattan where I could go to meetings there and get a job and slowly work my brain society. 
So they released me on a Sunday. I was scared out of my mind. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use it again. I'm gonna suddenly be struck drunk. The person would bring me down the elevator said, why don't you go into the meeting across the hall? It started in a few minutes. I went in and it was, look, I thought it was the size of the garden. This room, this room is probably as, you know, as small as the basement at uh, where Pax Beats on, and my home group Beats on Sunday. And, uh, and uh, it had big columns in it. And it was like 50 people in there. And I sat down and the guy I mentioned with the black side, we hadn't seen him in a long time. He was in the meeting. And then also they introduced the speaker and it was him. So God in his wonderful sense of humor. And uh, for the first time in my life, I did what I was told by the people who were upstairs in that uh, detox and rehab. They said, put your hand up and say you knew and ask for help. And I did, I said, my name was Gordon, I'm an alcoholic. It was the first time I ever met it in my life. And people applauded. And at the break, people came over. People gave me cigarettes. People asked me what I was doing. And no one gave me money. They took me out. And these people made sure I got into this place in Manhattan. And I went into this place in the Lower East Side. And I stayed there for a year and a half. I got to go to meetings there. And I got to meet a lot of amazing people. And I went to meetings on Staten Island. And I didn't like the meetings in Manhattan at first. So. But I just remember one day a car pulled up when I was at the bus stop. It was four guys from this group. And uh, I did service there. And they knew me because I made the worst coffee in AA. And uh, they said, Gordon, want to get in and you come with us? And I was just like, no, I don't want to get in the car with you. I hate getting in cars with trucks. And they were like, come on, we're going to the city. We're going to get Chinese food. And I said, I don't like Chinese food. And they were like, no one likes Chinese food. Come on, we're just going. And I got in the backseat, sitting on the hump of the old car in the middle again. It's like, oh. And uh, I said, I don't want to go to Chinese food. And the guy next to me put his hand on my lap. And I went, he said, don't worry about it. We got you. He knew I had no money. I couldn't say I had nothing. In my, I didn't have anything. I barely had tokens in. And it's like, we got you. And uh, I got involved at a meeting called the 14th Street Workshop. And there, when I went there, I met a lot of great guys, Leach and Dave, Leach, Saul, L, Jimmy B, and then Terry F, and all these guys. And uh, uh, when I was there one day, because you just have to buzz people into the meeting, I could sit there, and they had a lot of fellowships there. They had signs above the doors. And uh, I got very involved there. But uh, one day someone asked me, can you make signs for us? You got a nice handwriting. And I did. And uh, I made these signs. And someone said, hey, maybe you should go to school for that. You got a good handwriting. And uh, I did. And uh, Carrie F. and a couple of guys said, come on a retreat with us. I went on a retreat. I met all these amazing guys from living downtown. I got connected with these guys. And uh, I met one guy. He said, oh, what do you what do you want to do? And he said, well, I told him. And he said, why don't you come to my art studio? And I came to his art studio one day, and he put me to work there. And he says, you're very good at that. And I got involved with the 14th Street Workshop. I got plugged in. I didn't get to the sponsorship thing right away. But what the thing was, the people taught me certain things and they told me how to stay away from the first drink. And how do I stay from the first drink? And there's many things, but the best antidote very quickly is, you know, you're taking on the heavyweight champion of the world. Every single every single person he's faced, he's knocked out, knocked out of the ring. And you can rethink this all you want. The only way you can beat this guy is don't get into the ring. And that made sense to me. I won't get in the ring with this guy. And they told me, you know, if you don't pick up the first drink, you won't jump. You make a meeting a day for the first 90 days. If you don't like what we have, there's the door. Your misery can be refunded. You get active. You do service. And you don't say no when it comes to service. You get involved. You get sponsor. 
A sponsor, the acronym for a sponsor is a sober person offering newcomer suggestions on recovery. It's not a mommy, it's not a daddy, it's not a guru, it's nothing like that. It's not a higher power. It's another drug who's telling you to give you the message. It's a guide to alcoholics now. If it doesn't work out, you can find another person. Here are the slogans right behind me on my shoulder here. You get involved. You use the steps and you read this book. You have someone take through this book. I met a man early on. He's yeah, Ralph W. Great man. I loved him into dearly, but something wasn't connected when we were taking it. He never read the big book with me. I was told by Terry F. and a bunch of guys, I'm doing service at this meeting at the 14th Street Workshop. I'm going uptown to find out the speakers. I went up to a meeting down uptown and uh, it was called the Church of the Epiphany. It was called In the Beginning. And I met a man there. His name was Bob. He took me through the book. He asked me what my sponsor was doing with me. And he said, I'm doing this book with him. Uh, and he said, not the big book. And he said, why are you telling me to go read the stories? And he said, he's not reading with you. And I was like, yes. And then all of a sudden, next thing, he's like, things started changing for him. Miraculous things happened to me. And uh, he was my sponsor. But the one thing I met would love about him, he would say, Gordon, you know, I'd call him and say, Bob, I'm angry and I don't know why. And he would say, if you don't know why you're angry, why stay angry? And he would say, I don't know is a wonderful place to be. And what I don't know is a wonderful place to be. And uh, it just takes me out of the equation altogether. And uh, I, my time is just about up. I just want to tell everyone, when I work with these construction guys, they always would just sit and have their coffee in the morning and just look at an empty slab and appreciate what was there. And I would be looking at them like, what are we doing? And they were like, where is your spirit? Because this foundation was built. Well, I learned a foundation here in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I found my spirit here with every single one of you. Thank you for listening.